And so I want to tell you a little bit about where we have come from and why we're parking out here and where we are headed. And so if you remember, right after Easter, we began a series called The Risen Christ. And what we started to do was look at the different appearances that Jesus chose to make in the 40 days after he ascended or after he resurrected from the tomb, before he ascended to heaven. And we understand that for 40 days, we could have a lot of references. We could see a lot of stories. And yet we're given about seven of those uh, for specific reasons with specific people that are broken, confused, doubtful, and he chooses to launch them into his mission for his kingdom. 60 years later, Jesus appears again and speaks again to the churches that were launched by the very confused and broken people in the book of Revelation. So we see this growing momentum in this kingdom coming to where Jesus is addressing the churches that were launched out of his resurrection and ascension. He's given them a little bit of a correction. He's, he's aligning them back to his mission. In the fall, we're going to start a series uh, called The Rising Church. And in this, we're going to be looking at who exchange is. And 10 years after we launched will be this October Ten years after we launch, we're going to look at some of maybe the corrective alignments that we need to make. And so this series is helping set us up for what did Jesus say to the churches of Asia? And possibly what would Jesus say to us? I think these letters and these messages apply, and I think there's something that we can learn from. So if you would, read with me in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, We'll start in verse 12. And the angel of the church in Pegram write to the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, to commit acts of immorality. So also you have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who overcomes him, to him I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So this is one of those passages uh, that typically we read and we shake our head, we scratch our head, we say, I don't really know what's going on here, and we just keep reading, we just keep moving on. But I think the Lord has something for us here. Several years ago, we were on our way to um, our, our, my parents' house for Thanksgiving or Christmas. It's about a two-hour drive from our place to theirs. And we were about a mile away from, from their house. I mean, probably less than a mile away from their house when the blue lights in my rearview mirror started to flash. Uh, it, was, it was quick. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. He pulled us over. Literally, I could have like sent my kids 
just walk to Mimi and Poppy's and we'll be there in a minute. And they would have beat us. Uh, it was that close. Almost two hours of driving, no problems. And we got on River Road in Petersburg and that's when it happened, right? And that's one of those roads uh, that shift in the speed limit really, really quickly. And so uh, it's 45 at one minute. And so if you're doing your obligatory four to five over, you know, then it switches to 35. You can find yourself going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit rather quickly, which is, which is the amount where he pulled me at that fine Thanksgiving. Uh, and so he came up to the, to the car, he took my license registration, very pleasant. And he said something as he's giving me my ticket that I, I wish he had not have said. He said this, he said, you know, I, I will let somebody slide at 14, but 15's my limit. I got to give you a ticket, man. And so I, I wish, I wish he had said, you know what, anything over five, anything over six, I'm getting you for but he said, at 15, I just, even though it's Thanksgiving, I got to give you one, man. I was like, man, just one mile over, you know? And, and it made me think about this week, like, if you were a police officer, what would be your limit? Maybe not just with, with, uh, with speeding, but what would be the thing that you would uh, flash your lights on if you saw someone throw a piece of trash out the window? Maybe if you saw them going too fast in a school zone or a neighborhood, or maybe you saw them just uh, kind of like just being a punk to like someone who is not able to defend themselves. What, what would be your limit? What would make you say, you know what, I'm, I'm normally pretty graceful in these circumstances, but you have crossed my line that I have, even if it's by one degree, you've crossed it and I have to correct you. What would be the thing for you? I think in these letters, as Jesus writes to the seven churches of Asia, they've kind of crossed his line and he's stopping them and he's saying, before you go any further and destroy yourself, I have to correct you. These are things that Jesus cared so deeply about that he would write to the churches, he would speak, he would come to the, uh, John in a vision and speak to him in a way to say, I need you to get this message through to the churches because it's that important. And I want you to notice how Jesus introduces himself at the very beginning of this passage. It's a little different than all the others. And it says, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. The other six letters open uh, with two or more descriptions of Jesus. This letter only has this one terror-inducing image with Jesus and swords coming out of his mouth. Double-edged, ready for battle, he says. And they're not ornamental either. He says later in the sermon uh, that he's ready to do battle with those who are unreportant, unrepentant. And, and the sword would represent two things. Uh, the first would be judgment. Uh, in this letter, Jesus introduces himself uh, again with the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Back in uh, Revelation 1.16, John sees Jesus in glory, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. When Jesus returns in glory in chapter 19, we read, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation. So we know that this sharp two-edged sword is, is probably an image of judgment. Rather than envisioning Jesus with this uh, sword-shaped tongue, you should probably understand it to mean that Jesus will speak 
uh, decisive words of judgment. He will say things that no one can unsay. He, he will pronounce a judgment that no other judge can reduce in any way. Once he speaks, it's finished. The second thing that this sword represents is power. And I think, I believe, an extension of judgment in that Christ has this power and authority to judge, the only power and authority to judge. We know and understand that the sword is a weapon. It's capable of inflicting death. And so, so naturally, um, it functions as a symbol of power. The Roman emperors normally carried a sword or a dagger uh, on them, and, and it, would, it would serve as a reminder to the public, a sign of power to rule and to reign. Pergamum, as the capital city of a Roman province of Asia, uh, was where a governor uh, resided and from where he exercised what they called the right of the sword. This means that he had the power to rule over every area of life, including the right to execute those who went against Rome. So as Jesus walks into this scene and he speaks into this scene, he introduces himself as one who also carries a sword, one who's very powerful and that comes with judgment. So I think this title is especially appropriate for Jesus and the followers living in Pergamum under this direct Rome's representative facing not only outside oppression of their faith, but also internal pressure from false teachers, which we'll see in a second, within the church to compromise their distinctive Christian lifestyle. So the Jesus who will soon speak a word to them, uh, both of commendation and complaint, is first introduced as the only one who can speak these words. The only one who has true, ultimate power over life and death. And so as he introduces himself, he says these words next. He says this, and he, and he commends them uh, on, on their faithfulness. He says, I know where you dwell. I, I know it's in Satan's house where Satan's throne is and you hold firmly to my name and did not deny the faith even in the days of Antipas my witness my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells it's interesting that that Jesus and and by way of John speaks of two thrones in the book of Revelation he speaks of Satan's throne on earth in a real way, in a way that he establishes his kingdom and his throne and his power. He exercises evil from this throne. And also, if you read in Revelation chapter 4, we see the great throne of God who Christ is seated at with angels singing the songs that we joined in today. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in these two chapters, we have this envelope of these two thrones, these two kingdoms. And scripture warns us that we are only subjects of one. Scripture warns us that there's two kingdoms, there's two thrones, and we can only bow down to one. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Watch this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. 
Later, Paul writes that he's rescued us from the kingdom and the domain of darkness. Scripture is very uh, real and explicit about these two kingdoms with these two thrones that we choose to bow down at one. So Jesus acknowledges how difficult it is not to bow down at the throne of Satan. How difficult of a place it is and the culture it is for believers to currently dwell. The word he uses for dwell isn't some type of of temporary location either. It's not like a tent. Uh, He chooses actually a word uh, here that from the Greek uh, dwell, it indicates this permanent placement. They, They have nowhere else to go. And this will most likely be their lot for the rest of their lives. And I think that the two words that constantly speak to me from Jesus in these letters are the first two when he says this over and over and over and over again in the midst of hardship. I know. He says these two words again to the letters at the churches. He says these two words over and over and over again. Seven times Jesus speaks these words. I know. And most often, these two words don't come at the bridge between uh, the commendation and the condemnation. He's not saying, but I know what you've done. No, most often, these words come at the very beginning. He says, I know how difficult life is right now for you. I know the pain. I know the anguish. I know the struggle. He's not oblivious. He's not ignorant. He doesn't cast it away as if it's no big deal. He always knows. And it's been something that we've been pushing on every single week through every single letter in this series that Jesus walks among the churches. He knows your struggle and he cares. Maybe it's taken you three weeks to hear this. Maybe it's taken you three weeks to believe this. But it's something that Jesus says over and over and over again. He knows your hurt. He knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows your relational tension. He knows your frustration and your temptation. He knows and he cares. How comforting is it that Jesus acknowledges this for them? That they wouldn't live their lives in struggle and hardship. And Jesus says, hey, hey, come on, you can do this. It's no big deal. Tighten up your belt, tighten your shoes. Let's do this. Instead, Jesus says, listen, guys, I I know. He didn't just go right for the corrective. First, he assures them, I know. I want to put this on the screen every single week, but I think we have to believe this. Jesus knows your pain and he deeply Jesus knows your pain and he deeply cares. I, I think we have to offer our hearts and our minds a corrective that most often we believe that someone has to fix it to care. If Jesus cared, then he would do this. But I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just annihilate the Roman forces there in Pergamum. 
He doesn't say, hey, give me one second, everybody go to your homes. In fact, go to caves so that I can just obliterate everyone. Then you'll come out, you'll rule and reign the city. You'll be there forever. You'll take advantage of all their hardship and hard work. I'll put a a disease, a, a famine, I'll do something, right? He doesn't offer to take that away from them. Why? Because we've talked about over and over again in the past few weeks that, that I believe that Jesus understands and knows that there's something that he can accomplish in us through struggle and through hardship that he cannot or will not be able to accomplish in us in the most peaceful, comforting, and controlling times of our life. So he chooses to keep them there, but he acknowledges their pain. I think one of the most comforting things that we can experience in our pain and circumstances is when we're able to associate with someone else who understands. Who understands what it's like to do what you're doing. And when someone comes alongside of you in your final year and says, man, I know, I get, I know what it's like to write a dissertation or a thesis. It's hard. Keep at it. When someone comes to you and and they see you like struggling to get your shoes on your kids in the morning, like I know, man, I get it, what it's like sometimes to just feed them, what it's like to provide for a family, to struggle with purpose, whatever it's like, I think it's comforting when someone who's gone through those things, when someone's gone through that same fire and says, I know. I get it. For the church of Pergamum, it was their steadfast faith in the face of this incredible persecution that Jesus complimented and commended them for. They held firmly to his name uh, in spite of the proximity to Satan's throne. It seems like there's this massive demonic oppression that resides there in Pergamum. And he says that, that you've hold fast to my name. We see that Jesus' glory matters to him by the way he mentions it over and over to the churches. In 2.3, he says, you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. In 2.13, he says, you'll hold fast to my name. In 3.8, he says, you kept my word and have not denied my name. In 3.12, he says, and I'll write on him the name of my God. Jesus is committed to his name, his glory, his purpose, his kingdom. And so here in other places, Jesus commends the churches for holding tightly to his name, to regarding it in ways that the world would ask us or push us or command us sometimes to push away. But living for him in this way matters, even when it's difficult. Even when it comes with persecution, even when it comes with suffering. He commends them for bearing up his name, for living boldly, for honoring him. And in Jesus' words, he mentions uh, a name of someone, Antipas, who resided in this community of Pergamum, who apparently was killed. Can you imagine getting this letter from John? Maybe uh, you understand that John is at Patmos, this island, exiled, has no way of knowing who your church is, what has happened here in Pergamum. But John sends you a letter that says, hey, 
Jesus told me to tell you these things. And these are the words from him. And Jesus mentions specifically one of your names. Can you imagine what this might have done to the church in this moment where Jesus mentions the name of Antipas and says, I I know. I I know that he did not die for nothing. I know that he suffered. I knew that he was brutally killed. It's not been overlooked. I know. Jesus speaks the name of one who is martyred. And Antipas appears to have suffered a quite gruesome death. Although uh, the Bible doesn't speak of how he died, church history actually does. It's one of those other points where church history, or Jewish history, Roman history, back up these claims that scripture makes. And so historians will tell us that Antipas was killed in what they say is a brazen bull. It was a torture and execution device designed in ancient Greece and later used by the Romans. And in this method, the condemned was placed in this hollow, life-sized brass bull with a fire that started underneath, which would slowly roast a person to death. But it was exaggerated by and compounded by this creation of complex tubes and stops in the brass bulls so that the prisoner's screams of pain were actually converted into sounds like the bellowing of an infuriated bull, thereby amusing those who watched the ghastly spectacle. So, of course, the only reason for murdering someone in this way was to humiliate them and to warn everyone else. If you continue to say what you say, if you continue to live like you live, if you continue to refuse to bow down to our gods and worship in the way that we do, this will happen to you. There's an intimidation aspect to this. Apparently, even in the face of danger and death, the church of Pergamum did not waver. What about you? What would it take for you to waver? I mean, I think maybe in our best moments, we think to ourselves, man, if they're lining us all up, I'll stay strong. I'll say, no, Jesus is my Lord. I'll march myself to the, to the brazen bull. But what if Jesus' words conflict deeply with how someone you love wants to live their life? Do you stand firm then? Do you stand in the face of opposition to Christ when culture says, no, 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 you can't live that way, you can't say those things, you can't love that way, you can't do those things, right? To be a part of us, you have to acknowledge these things, you have to affirm these things, right? In that way, is that too much for you? Is it too much for you to, to stand in your faith in those moments? What if the words of Jesus conflict deeply with how you desperately want to hold a grudge? What if Jesus' words aren't easy to do? What if Jesus' words prevent you from following your desires, your wants, your temptations, 
your passions? What if Jesus' words conflict with the deepest longings of your soul? Would you still say, Oh, Jesus is my Lord. With my death or with my life, I choose to follow you. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, leave, find somewhere else to go. The city's absolutely corrupt, so you better get out. He commends them and he says, tighten up. Tighten up. He says, I know where you're at. I know it's difficult, but you need to realign. Notice this in verse 14. I do have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some in the same way that hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So John uses this Old Testament story, you might remember it, um, of a false prophet, Balaam, uh, to make these two complaints. He says, there are some among you who are teaching of Balaam, uh, who was teaching Balak to to place a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. John's many Old Testament references in his letters Uh, probably alludes to um, that there are third generation Christian readers in Asia Minor who would know these stories well enough to connect the dots, probably better than we do. So near the end of their 40, near 40 year journey in the wilderness, the Israelite people came to the plains of Moab uh, where they could look west across the Jordan and see the promised land. So they've spent almost nearly 40 years in the wilderness wandering as a punishment of their rebellion and unfaithfulness to God. And they can look just across the river and see the land that God has promised them. Balak, the king of Moab, was terrified of the threat posed by this foreign nation. He had heard of Israel and all the, the nations that they had gone through, how God had had blessed them, had gone before them. And so he uh, promised to pay Balaam, a pagan uh, diviner, a large sum of money to place a curse on the Israelites. Do you remember this story? It involves a talking donkey. We won't go there today. And at first the plan fails miserably. A series of humbling and even humorous events uh, speaks the result of Balaam uh, blessing Israel numerous times. Nevertheless, despite these blessings from Balaam, the Israelites fall into sexual uh, immorality and idolatry. They begin to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them uh, into the sacrifice of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. In Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 and 2, we have just a little bit of what happened. And while Israel remained at Shittim, I can feel at the moment Jana, Ed, and Christy saying, don't make a joke. Keep reading. It was a very terrible place. 
The people began to commit infidelity with the daughters of Moab, and they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So near 40 years, near 40 years of wandering in the desert, watching God go before them, fighting their battles for them, providing manna for them, creating water that comes out of rock for them. They're lured away so easily by the natural desires of their heart, sexual immorality and idolatry. And so Christ is, is using this story in a way to say, like, be careful. You guys, you guys are, are tolerating this. You're allowing this deviation to come into your midst. You're allowing these small changes to infiltrate who you are, and it will destroy you. I learned um, of a aviation term this week in our content meeting, thanks to Trip, uh, called normalization of deviance. It's a term that that pilots used, and one uh, that Peter Kratz, who's a, a pilot, wrote about um, in an incident that happened several years ago. He says, I I shook my head in disbelief while reading uh, the NTSB, I have no idea what that is, Tripp can tell you later, report on uh, May 31st, 2014, a nighttime accident involving a Gulfstream G4 in Bedford, Massachusetts, which was released a couple of months ago. How could these experienced professional flight crew with modern two-engine jet plane uh, try to take off with locked controls? It sounded impossible to me, but that's what the safety board said happened. The airplane overran the end of the runway, uh, crossed a grassy area, hit approached lights, and uh, a local localizer antenna passed through the airport's perimeter fence and finally stopped in a ravine, bursting into flames. Both pilots, a flight attendant, and four passengers were killed. But these were not unexperienced uh, pilots. A 45-year-old captain who held an ATP certificate with the multi-engine rating uh, type of ratings for various jets. His logout book wasn't located, but he reported a couple of uh, months before uh, to his medical exam. He had logged over 11,000 flight hours in this airplane. The first officer, the co-pilot, age 61, also held an ATP certificate with also jet-type ratings. He logged 18,000 hours of flight time as a pilot in command and 2,800 hours in G4 airplanes. According to the accidents, uh, air, the accident airplanes flight logs, these pilots had flown together on almost 85% of the flights in, in the previous year and all of the flights in that year. They had determined that the cause of the accidents was the pilot's failure to perform a brief pre-flight check. Do I have the controls? There's literally a, a lock that you take out of the controls and place in the door of the plane. It has a red handle. But the author goes on to say, slight deviations, normalizations of deviations cause 
catastrophic errors. What happens is this, we start to speed up our pre-flight check. Hey, you got that, you got that, got that, got that, got that, yeah, 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 got it. Instead of going through and checking this first thing, is this done? Yes, it is. We just start to speed through them. Why? Because we're in a hurry. We got uh, things to do. It's okay. It's all clear. We've been here before. We've done this a thousand times. And this normalization of deviance, how do we do the pre-flight check? Do we check off everything? No, we just kind of think through. Did we check it? Caused six people to die that day. But I'm afraid the church isn't far behind. I'm afraid the church in some ways begins to get accustomed to this normalization of deviance where we just find ourselves just a little bit out of line. Or maybe we just go through the motions. We just check off the boxes really, really quickly. I wonder what it is that we get so accustomed to that we allowed to slide. what it is that the church needs to stand firm against today. It could be what God says about marriage and gender. It could be what the Bible teaches about the image of God and how life begins in the womb. It could be that God's word is actually God's word and we don't get to pick and choose what we like and what we want to follow. It could be that our Balak and Balaams are politicians and leaders that desperately want to pull us away from the centrality and the surrender of Scripture to another vote and another dollar. So what are the sins that you believe we desperately need to guard against in the church? I'm asking you this question. Maybe you can talk about it with your spouse over lunch, maybe tonight sometime. What are the sins do you believe we desperately need to guard against in the church. Now, I, I wonder, maybe when we say those things, we all have things in our minds, things that come, come in that are important to us. Maybe we have people in mind. But I wonder if anyone answered that question in your heart with my sins. What do we desperately need to guard the church? What sins do we desperately need to guard the church again? I wonder if anyone answered that question in our hearts with mine. We need to guard the church against my sins. My wicked heart. My normalization of deviance. My sins are the ones that we need to be destroyed for the sake of my soul and for the sake of my church. My sins are dangerous. My normalization of deviance is dangerous. You know, we could be guilty of harboring and ignoring sins in the church, then we're certainly guilty of harboring and ignoring sins in our own souls. I'll say it this way, that there's no sin present in the church that isn't first established and rooted in our hearts. There is no sin established in the church that's not first established and rooted in our own hearts. So isn't it funny how when we think of sins in the church, we think of everyone else but ourselves? So I ask this, what did you bring today? 
What did you bring today that doesn't belong? Thankfully, thankfully, we're given the answer. Christ does not condemn us. He invites us. Listen to these next words of Jesus when he says this. Therefore, repent. Repent. He's he's not trapping us or, or luring us into a trap of judgment where he wants to smite us. He's inviting us into this place where he offers us then grace and mercy. He says, I want you to repent or else I have to come quickly and I'll wage war against them with the sword. Those who led you astray, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I'll give him some of the hidden manna and I'll give him a white stone, a new name written on the stone, which with no one knows except the one who receives it. Here's how, I think maybe if I could just, Drill this down deeply into your soul today. Repentance is always the answer when we deviate from Christ. Repentance is it's, it's always the answer when we deviate from Christ. Not hiding it. Not just trying to do better. Not working harder. It's Repentance. It's repentance. And here's what repentance looks like. Repentance looks like in a physical way, if you're walking towards something. Right? And I think maybe I, I will, um, often we use this term, we use a term, I'm struggling with this. We use a term, I'm struggling with this. But struggling with this does not look like this. Choosing one step after another in the same direction of what we call struggle. Struggle means, yes, we can find ourselves in places we shouldn't, in temptations that we shouldn't, but struggling against something indicates that we're desperately fighting it. And so repentance comes in when we realize, hey, I'm not fighting this. And we're walking this way and repentance stops us in our tracks and says, God, thank you for extending an invitation to me. Not when our turn to be judged, but to be welcomed with mercy and grace that he lavishes on us. That's repentance. He extends this invitation to come back to him. It's not a trap. It's a request to find ultimate forgiveness and fulfillment in him. James Hamilton writes uh, in his book, and he explains the two things, what what were promised, this hidden manna and this white stone, which is a a quite, uh, you know, intrinsic obstacle course of theology, I will say. But he says this, I think explains it well. He said, why would Jesus promise head and manna in a white stone with a new name on it that no one except the one who receives it knows? I think these promises are meant to meet the needs that the people seek to meet through idolatry and sexual immorality. 
He says, I I suggested earlier that idolatry arises from this desire to have our needs met. But Jesus promises to meet those needs. Jesus offers us this provision of hidden manna, which is a better provision than any idol offers. He tells us that we don't need to go to other gods. Similarly, I suggested that sexual immorality arises from the longing for intimacy. The promise of a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except those who receive it as a promise of that intimate relationship with Christ. Whatever else it means, this promise that that there will be a private communication between God and the one who overcomes. Surely God knows the name on the stone and the one who receives the stone knows the name on the stone. And that exclusive knowledge, that private interaction that no one else shares is the essence of intimacy. Jesus is arming us with the weapons for war on lust when he says, listen, there's no other relationship that will even come close to the one that I'm offering you. He offers this when we stand firm. But we have to fight against sin. We have to fight against the normalization of deviance in our own lives. In Edmund Spencer's allegorical poem, The Fair Queen, Spencer depicts the church as a lovely lady who is accompanied by the knight of the Red Cross, who corresponds in many ways to the individual Christian. So at one point, the evil enchanter deceives the Red Cross knight into thinking that the fair lady, the church, has been unfaithful to him. So he leaves her and strikes out on his own and he makes his way and he finds another lovely young lady with whom he comes to a quiet, secluded uh, repose under a foreboding tree. The Red Cross Knight then hears someone shout a cry of warning, telling him that he should flee lest he be uh, buy pleasures from the lurking lady at the cost of his life. And at first, Red Cross Knight is frightened by this cry, but then he's overcome by the beauty of the lady again. Who's actually a witch in disguise. Then the tree speaks to him, telling him that he was formerly a man, but a witch disguised a beautiful young maid transforms him into a tree. The tree tells him that though he's a tree, the heat and the cold pain him and how he relates one day, he happened to see the witch as she really was. And he says this, a filthy full old woman did I view that ever had touched her, I did really rue. And when he recoiled from the witch in horror, she turned to him into a tree. The point that Spencer's making is simple, sin always promises sin never pays sin always promises and it never pays sin disguises itself as something attractive refreshing and rewarding but underneath this false exterior sin is filthy and foul and those who take it will only regret it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this letter that you have graciously given us and the church of Asia. 
Lord, that we would guard against the sin in our own hearts and guard against the sin in church, in our families. That we would stand firm when it's difficult in the face of a culture who hates you and therefore will hate us. God, whatever we face this week, would you give us the courage to stand firm for your namesake? Lord, for those in the room who may be choosing to walk in darkness right now or struggle with temptation and sin, I pray, Lord, that you would comfort them with your words and your invitation even now, repent. I don't know if that's you this morning. Maybe you came in. Maybe you can say it's a guilty conscience, but maybe it's a, just a spirit-driven conviction. He wants to do something in your life. And he is extending the invitation for you to find mercy. It's only found in repentance. It's only found when we turn away from our sin and we turn to him. He's asking you, would you repent? Today, as Jesse leads us, I want to invite you to a time of prayer. In the back, right at the curtains when you came in, there's about four or five prayer partners, both men and women, who've been trained and are eager to pray with you. It doesn't mean that you have to go back and, and share your deepest, darkest secrets. It doesn't even mean that you go back and share what you're repenting from. It just simply means that you go back and you say, would you pray for me? as a journey towards Christ in this way. It's not just a prayer that we pray today, but it's one that we have committed to pray with you throughout the week and in your journey. Would you consider maybe that first place of turn and steps are towards prayer and repentance? Father, give us the courage to do what you ask. And meet us as you've promised with mercy and grace that we do not deserve. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray.